We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Everybody, stay with Sons Fidel. I'm coming at you once again with Michael Graney and Don Brohan of the Economic and Social... Where, where are you guys from? Center for Economic and Social Justice. There you yeah. go. CESJ. <laughs> and you're from Census uh, Fidelity. We got that. Authors of Economic Personalism. A book that will be underneath the show notes. We'll talk about that later, about where you can find the link. But uh, working on another book, uh, uh, we'll talk about that, I guess, when it gets closer. But this... What we brought him on is to discuss the principles of economic justice. So, what in the wide, wide world of sports are are they? How are they? They, as in plural, there's more than one, right? And what are they? Yes. Well, I think maybe we should start with the question of what is economic justice? And that's a very vague term these days, and it's been used um, to describe redistribution or it's been used in a general sense to just you know this idea of fairness but what does that mean and how do we practice it and how do we use it to better our lives so in terms of an actual definition we're looking in system terms and that is those things we do those virtues or that set of virtues that help us shape our economic systems, how we produce, how we distribute the income from what's produced, how the economy can work in such a way that it benefits each human being from birth to death. So without working principles, the problem is that, you know, this will never really be able to use this. So it was, Breakthrough in 1958 with the publishing of the Capitalist Manifesto by Lewis Kelso and Mortimer Adler, where in their chapter five, they looked at economic rights and economic justice. And they contrasted economic justice with charity, economic charity. And so they're looking at, well, if we're talking about how wealth is created and how wealth and income are distributed, we need to think of this in terms of a system. And so they analyzed economic justice in terms of three principles. And it was the principle of participation, the uh, the principle of distribution, and the principle of limitation. And they're basically were saying with participation, it must be based on uh, principles of justice as opposed to based on principles of charity. And then they looked at the principles of distribution and they said it must be based on distributive justice in terms of to each according to what he or she has contributed versus 
the Marxist view of dis distribution based on need. So you got those two principles, an input principle and outtake principle, but sometimes these principles, they're, they're not operating correctly, which is most of the time, it seems. And so they looked at a principle of limitation, meaning if someone was participating, had the means to participate and was monopolizing those means and those opportunities to the point where no one else was able to produce in order to generate an income, then you had to um, ch make changes in the system. And so starting with those principles, CESJ, um, and this was um, in 1984, uh, CESJ was founded and one of our co-founders was Father William Faree, who was a scholar in uh, Pope Pius XI's Concepts of Social Justice. And he came together with a number of people, including uh, Norman Curland, who happens to be my father, who was a close associate of Louis Kelso's, who we could call the um, capital ownership philosopher, expanded ownership philosopher. And so what what Kelso brought and, and Mortimer Adler brought was this in this idea of limitation that we saw later that th this principle really was limiting in terms of how you correct systems. And so it was in the idea of social justice, and Mike will go into greater detail in this, that we we rethought how this was expressed. So we saw that we're talking about participative justice distributive justice and social justice as the means by which you make sure that your system at any level is allowing equal participation and distribution based on what someone contributed and then the ability to correct it and that's the act of social justice. So that's kind of a broad overview and now uh, Mike can get into some of the details. Yeah, some of the details. We we could be here all month if we were going into all the details and only scratch the surface. I think you know Father Faree, uh, in, in a little pamphlet he wrote, which is available for free on the CESJ website, Introduction to Social Justice. He says we're just scratching the surface here. This is there is so much work to be done in this area, and a lot of the work has to do with overturning the idea that with respect to the field we're talking about, economic justice, a lot of people think that economic justice means just what Karl Marx said it was, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. But that's not justice at all. What that is, is attempting to use the principle of charity, the highest supernatural virtue, to replace justice, the highest natural virtue which is completely to misunderstand the role of the natural and the supernatural. The supernatural does not replace the natural, it fulfills and completes it. So that we say charity, and the principle of charity is to each according to his need, is not to replace justice, which is the principle to each according to his or her inputs, so that you get what you put in, you get back commensurate with what you contributed. So what charity does is not replace justice, it completes and fulfills it. So that 
your principal, suppose someone, you know, contributes 10% to a uh, profitable endeavor and gets back 10% of the profits. Well, if that's not enough to live on, what do you do? Well, as Pius XI pointed out, it's not justice to give him more, it's charity. So that in Quadragesimo Anno, for example, he says, relations between employers and employees should be based on justice, but completed and fulfilled by charity. In other words, the wage you're paying me in justice isn't enough for me to live on. Well, we have to figure out a way that we can justly get you more income, but until we do, in charity, we should pay you more. Not that that's justice, that's not justice, that's charity. And what the whole idea behind implementing true economic justice is, well, if someone can't get enough out of wages, what do we do? Kelso had a brilliant idea. Well, you know, if people can't make enough as employees, why don't they become owners? Because owners have a right to share in profits. Employees only have a right to wages. Now, there are, of course, a number of enterprises that have always, you know, shared profits. But a share of profits can be taken away if it's just a gift to an employee. But it's due to an owner by right. Uh, so that the, the whole participation, the principle of participation says you have the right not merely to participate in economic life as a worker you know, for wages, you have the right to the full spectrum of participation, which is by your labor and by your ownership, not just consumption. I mean, things like the Great Reset, uh, they're well-intentioned, but the problem they're looking at is how do people get enough so that they can be good consumers or be able to consume enough? Well, according to Kelso and certain other people like Jean-Baptiste say 200 years ago, is the way you become a consumer is you're a producer. The Great Reset is not looking at how do people become productive. It's looking at how do they be, I almost said consumptive, but that means something else. <laughs> how do they have the power to consume? Well, Kelso looked at the problem a little differently. If you want to consume, you have to produce. That's in fact Adam Smith's first principle of economics is consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. Don't produce anything unless it's meant for consumption. So how do you do it? Well, the only way to produce is either with your labor or your capital. Now, under capital, we also include things like land and natural resources because what Kelso did was interesting and it's completely consistent with the concept of personalism. In personalism, excuse me, there are persons and there are things. So what Kelso said is, why bother to divide the factors of production into labor, land, and capital when labor and capital technology are both non-human? We'll just divide, divide the factors of production into the human, labor, and the non-human, capital. So 
it's more personalist than the traditional classical division into the three uh, factors of production. But how do you participate? Well, if your labor isn't sufficient, I mean, suppose you're being replaced by a robot. The way Kelso said to handle that back in a 1964 interview in Life magazine is, well, if the robot takes your job, let's buy, actually he said the machine. If the machine wants your job, let's buy it, meaning let's buy the machine. And what he did was come up with a way to do it. Most people think that in order to be able to buy the machines that are replacing you, you have to have saved enough money to buy it. Kelso pointed out that that's not the way corporate finance works. Most corporations on the face of the earth will say, how can we buy this capital that's going to pay for itself in the future? Not how much money do we have right now to be able to buy this machine? Unless, of course, you're first starting out and don't have a credit history or something. But most of corporate finance throughout history has been people acquiring assets that pay for themselves, not first accumulating the savings in order to do it. This is the whole issue of past savings, which is past reductions in consumption, and future savings, which is future increases in production, uh, which, of course, then means that when you get to the principle of distribution, if you can't contribute enough with your labor, Kelso made it possible for you to contribute with capital as well. And then that brings you to the third principle, which we call social justice. Kelso only, Kelso and Adler, I should say, only called it limitation. Well, we thought limitation was too limiting because that just says, don't do that. And if you look at, say, for instance, the history of the social encyclicals, which actually started in 1832 with Mirare Vos, not in 1891 with Rerum Novarum. The difference between Rerum Novarum and all the previous social encyclicals was that instead of just saying, don't do that, Rerum Novarum says, why don't you do this? And guess what he said to do? Make as many of the people as possible into owners so that they can contribute economically with both their labor and their capital. In fact, when Leo XIII was still Cardinal Pecci back in uh, Perugia. I had to stop and think where he was. He was called Archbishop Bishop. Long story there we won't get into. But he, with his own money, helped start a savings bank so that propertyless workers could become owners. Can you imagine a bishop today doing that? I don't know of any. But this gives you the three principles of economic justice. Everyone has the right to participate as both a worker, labor, and an owner, capital, and to receive a distribution based on the, the, the equitable or pro rata share of his or her contribution. I mean, you contribute 10% to, an, to a project, you should get 10, back 10% of the results, whether it's a profit or a loss. You're entitled to 10% of the profits, but you also suffer 10% of the loss. And then you have social justice, which suppose that your participation is flawed somehow or the distribution is flawed somehow. What social justice says is let's correct that situation so that it operates properly. If you have a situation where there are only wage workers, well, 
you may have to give them charity to tide them over. But the real goal is how do we structure the system so that you can participate fully as both a worker and an owner? And even if you're not a worker, as an owner. There's nothing that says that every single human being on earth can't be an owner. In fact, it's inherent in human nature. It's even included, whatever you may think of the UN, it's Article 17 of the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Everybody has the right to be an owner individually or in free association with others. So you get the three principles of economic justice that way, participation, distribution, and tying them all together, social justice. So UBI kind of throws all those under the bus, huh? Well, the UBA, UBA, the UBI, I almost said UVA. I thought, no, no, we don't want to get What's the University of Virginia got to do with it? Uh, that kind of, you can understand the concern. How do we get people enough consumption power so that they can live and have a decent life? But it's taking the wrong shortcut. In fact, it shouldn't be taking a shortcut at all. The only expedient that should be allowed is let's give people charity to live on while we restructure it so that they can become productive and thus be able to consume and thus fully participate in the economy. That's the work of social justice. The work of social justice is not redistribution. The work of social justice is making it possible to be a full contributor and participant in the economy. economic justice yeah and i i just wanted to add to what mike said in terms of the specific institution when we talk about participating as an owner people say great you said we all have the right to be owners well how am i going to become an owner i have no money i have no assets and um you know what am i supposed to do well Part of the problem with universal basic income and the proposals that uh, were put forth in the Great Reset, um, where they see the problem of uh, most people not being able to participate, you know, they're being excluded from economic power and economic activity. They see the problem of human beings and their labor not being needed as much as you have uh, more efficient technologies, ro- robotics, uh, artificial intelligence. So, you know, what am I supposed to do that, you know, that's what's controlling my life and those who own those things. And then the governments who make the laws to allow that to happen, you know, what do we do? And the main institution that they are unable to deal with is the institution of money, credit and central banking because it's in those uh, that that institution with all those those components that we see how people will have the ability to produce and receive their distributions and exchange and you know going back to the question of what is money uh, they're trapped right now most people are trapped in the idea that money is what the government creates what what it prints up or has the central bank print up in order to help finance government debt so one of the problems in you know going to the notion of participative justice it's not only good enough you know it's not enough to just say everyone must be able to participate with their capital ownership as well as their labor it's how do uh, 
how do people, how does each person participate in the institution that will enable you to become an owner? And that's in money and how we create it in a way that number one is not going to be just basing it on growing government debt, you know, whether it's a welfare state um, distributing, you know, handing out checks to keep people alive and pay their rent and buy food. But really, how do we look at rethink our system of money? So we see it, it's the means of bringing in uh, new technologies that will produce more goods and services at better prices. And also, the more we shift from our technologies doing the economic production and we owning it, the more time we will have to engage in truly human activities, whether it's, you know, um, going into religious orders, going into medicine, law, education, that those, you know, ideally, if, as far as Aristotle was concerned, those are things that people should have the means and freedom and time available to do those things because they love to do them, you know, not in order to get more and more pay for them. So it, we really need to look closely then at changing the system, the money systems, which today they empower government, they empower a few. The already wealthy are really the ones who have access to the uh, machinery of money creation because they already own, they have collateral. So when they want to finance, you know, a whole new industry, new technologies, they can go to lenders who will say, okay, you know, what is it you need a loan for? It's, it's this. What's your collateral? Well, I'm rich. You can see how many assets I have. If, you, if this loan doesn't work, you've got plenty to seize. So they're able to get new money and credit. Whereas the rest of us, which is like 99%, maybe, okay, let's say 95% of every person on this earth, we don't have enough assets. If we want to get a loan in order to purchase capital that will pay for itself, the the lenders the the money system asks well where's your collateral you know what do we get if your loan doesn't get paid back uh well i don't have any assets and they'll say sorry you don't have a loan so one of the things kelso as a corporate finance lawyer he he figured out you know how are the rich getting richer and what is the tools that they are able to participate in and he said let's make it available to every person and so if you have a feasible capital project, meaning if you get the loan to buy the capital to produce more goods and services, and you have a, you know customers who will buy it, and you can project, you'll have so many so much in sales and profits. You'll know whether you can pay off the loan with the the future profits. But if you don't have assets as collateral, what's the substitute? And that's where he came up with the idea of insurance. It's you insure against the risk of a loan going bad. So he created, and so he's looking in system terms at the, this principle of participative justice. How do you make this actually happen and re make it real? And you have to look at how you can participate both with your labor and your capital and how you can participate in the means to do that. Then you have the problem of distribution. Okay, how are we gonna decide who gets what, who is entitled to what? Well, you can either have the government come in and say, well, we're going to arbitrarily say, you know, this person may 
own no more than this amount or get, you know, get more than this amount of income. And so it's, you know, restrictive. Or you can say, no, private property, if we're going to be faithful to that principle versus, you know, government redistribution and arbitrary redistribution, but private property is this what we would call part of the natural law, part of it in our nature is to feel this sense that if we produce, if we contribute, we should be rewarded for that. So we, you know, we have a sense of fair distribution being to each according to what he or she is due. So then using property as the principle, then we can say, for example, that if we become owners of this advanced technology by owning shares in corporations that use this technology, you know, because I wouldn't know what to do with a robot if you put it in front of my face. I mean, this is why we have business corporations. Then you can determine, according to the principle of private property, if you own one-tenth of the ownership of a corporation and you generate profits, then you are entitled to 10% of those the uh, total profits that that company produces. So it's a very simple balance. The notion of the scales is very important. But then you look at, okay, today, do we have such a system? You know, is the money system and the banking system, is it doing this? Is it allowing participative justice to operate? And we have to say, no, it isn't. You know, so right now we have no way for most people to get into that ownership game. What do we have to do? Well, thanks to people like you, Steve, who are <laughs> giving us an opportunity to, you know, express these ideas to a, a, a large audience. First, people have to know, you know, they have to understand what these principles, so they operate and they move forward in a principle just way. And then they have to see what changes need to be made. And this is really um, part of changing laws. So you got education, you need to make the legal changes. And, and also, and part of this is to reassure people, no one is gonna have anything taken away from them. Because if we respect private property, we can't violate it by taking it away from some people. So then we as citizens need to be able to organize, to demand really what is do injustice to each of us and that is the part right to participate fully in the common good which is all those systems institutions and laws that we create to develop fully as as human persons so i think that when we look at this moment in history where some people are saying we need to reset you know the world stopped for about a year and you could see that the danger in you know to the economy when suddenly you you stop this activity and now we have to you know how are we going to go forward so that is a legitimate question how do we go forward with justice and go back returning to the idea of natural law what is you know part of being a human person and how do we respect and support the dignity of and empowerment of each person so what's with the uh, input and output principles? Yeah, that well, that was the input principles participation, how you contribute. And the output principle is distribution, how you get your reward, the outtake. So you, like any system, you have input, outtake, and then you have feedback to say is what's going in 
the same as equal to what's coming out. And if it's not, something is wrong. So we have to uh, correct. So it's feedback and correct, corrective principle is that third one. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with, a, you know, not to keep, you know, beating a live horse. It's the issue of money. Most people have assigned money, this wild mystique. You know, it's something that, you know, the mortal god of the state creates that enables us to live. Yeah, baloney. Money is actually very easy to understand, and it's the, it's the mechanism by means of which the input principle and the output principle work. And if the money system is screwed up, then your participative principle, participative justice, your distributive principle, distributive justice, are going to be messed up. Because getting down to the most basic issue of what money is, it's the way I exchange what I produce for what you produce. I mean, suppose I'm really good at raising livestock for food, which means I'll have all the meat I want but I may want some bread or some vegetables in there too. And so-and-so, the baker, who's really good at growing and processing and wheat and baking bread with it, and the greengrocer who uh, is good at growing vegetables and selling them, they want some of my meat. Well, I can take a cow down to each of them and try and figure out, okay, how many of you, your vegetables are you going to give me for this cow? And how many loaves of bread are you going to give me for another cow? Or we can come up with something that we can use to facilitate these trades. We don't have to sit there and argue for two days deciding how many loaves of bread to give me for a cow. We can say, well, why don't we say that a cow is worth 500 dollars. We'll figure out you know, what a dollar is worth. Money is a way of measuring value. In a, in a, or as Aristotle put it, money is a way by means of which two people are trying to value two things, have a third thing that they measure both of them in terms of. So in a sense, all money is, the way Kelso put it is, money is a yardstick. Well, does that mean that only the government can supply us with yardsticks and if we don't have enough yardsticks, we can't measure anything? Well, no, that's a lot of nonsense, which of course is the why Kelso put it that way. If we think of money as simply this abstraction, this mechanism, this social tool by means of which I can value what I produce for what you produce, and then we come up with this physical thing called currency so that I can sell my cattle to somebody else and get a bunch of these dollars and I can give you dollars for your vegetables or your bread and someone else can give me dollars for my beef that I raise. And life is so much easier. Instead of trying to sit there and figure out how to exchange them directly, we use this thing called money to help us. And part of the problem is, and another problem is that Believe it or not, the commercial and central banking systems of the world were set up to operate in that fashion, to help us exchange our productions, not to sit there and wait for the government to create money that they lend out. 
No, that's not what commercial banks do. Commercial banks can actually create money. If you've got something of value that you bring to them, they can turn it into money. This is why uh, a commercial bank will say, well, you want to finance this capital project. And mm, we like your collateral. We like the project. We think it's going to pay off. So we will take a contract and we will issue, we will create new money for you. We'll call it a checking account. And you go out and buy what you need to get this project going, make it profitable, then come back and pay us back this money we created. And we'll also take a fee for it. And what a central bank does is what a commercial bank does for its customers, the central bank does for the commercial banks. This makes the whole process much more secure. Plus, everybody's using the same unit of currency. And the fact that it's spread out all over an entire economy makes it much safer. It's like insurance, uh, sort of. It spreads out the risk. A, a, a commercial bank allows you know, a much less risky uh, single person to use their money to make a purchase so that the, all, the bar, all the vendors trust the money because it's not really the, the, the borrower they're trusting, they're trusting the bank. Similarly, the commercial banks can trust the central bank. Or should be able to. <laughs> and that's the problem is right now, the central bank is being used to buy government debt. So every dollar, U.S. dollar that exists is not backed by new assets, good no, new goods and services. It's backed by the promise of government to repay at some point in the future. And guess who does the repaying? It's the taxpayers. And maybe not taxpayers today, but future taxpayers, your children and your grandchildren are going to have to repay that debt. And if they don't repay that debt, which as some economists, they, they suggest that, well, you never really have to repay this, you know, and what do you call someone who doesn't repay a debt they're a thief <laughs> yeah okay and what do you call money that is not backed you know doesn't really have anything standing behind it you call it counterfeiting so we really need to look at this idea of money in not it's not even in a new way it's looking at money in its really its its essence its old understanding and not be trapped by the notions that, for, for example, that money, money is only currency or money is only legal tender. And, that, and legal tenders, Mike, he's the you know, money expert here, he'll tell you that's just um, a form that you're, requ you're required to accept. If someone wants to pay you in dollars and that's the legal tender, then by law, you have to, be, have to accept that. Well, actually, it's it, the way this, the way they say this. You can't refuse it. You can't refuse it. Yeah. Yeah. Enough. You can have a fuse. Well, yeah. the the catch is that if you go to someone and you are indebted to them, and they are at their normal place of business during normal business hours, and you present them with le what is called legal tender, and they refuse it, legally the debt is canceled. Yeah. And so you can imagine what craziness is going to occur in El Salvador where 
the president just uh, proclaimed that Bitcoin will it will be considered legal tender. And we all know how stable the value of Bitcoin has been, right? And so if you're a, you know, a store owner and you're forced to accept Bitcoin, which is worth a whole lot one day and tomorrow it's worth, you know, one tenth of that value, you've got a real problem there. So another aspect of money is to have a stable standard. And that's where, you know, you can start looking into whether we should be considering gold, the value of gold as a standard, or whether now that we're in the 21st century, we look at something that is really, truly of value in, you know, all aspects of production, that's energy. So some measurement of energy and Bucky Fuller had thought of the, the, um, the price of a kilowatt hour as being that, you know, that's something that you could determine, get a global average. But that's, you know, that's the point of that is really so that people know that when you see this currency, that's one form of money, um, or you create money, that you know what the value, how you're, how you're measuring that yardstick, what the yardstick, you know, what it really translates into real life. So um, I think that when you see these proposals, such as what is coming out of, you know, the Great Reset, that their biggest trap, even the ones who I think are concerned about, you know, inclusion, uh, opportunity, um, empowerment, uh, living a good life, and that they're looking at every, all human beings on, you know, on this planet, not just a few, then how they bring that about is so influenced by their notions of money that if it remains trapped in the present system where money is a government, you know, it's created by government, it's backed by government debt, that there's, you know, that you can only finance new capital and therefore new capital ownership through past savings, rather than seeing that already, this is something that's going on perhaps even more than what we see in terms of money transactions is, you know, the use of, of contracts between businesses and promises. You know, if, if we can't shift to this new and clear understanding that money is merely a yardstick, it's a tool to facilitate production, distribution and transactions, that it, what, it has to be based on real things, real goods and services. Once we see that and we understand this notion, this importance also we have to say of trust, that money and credit cannot operate unless you have trust. If I don't trust that what you're giving me, your, your money is really worth anything, I'm not gonna engage in a transaction with you. And that's another way to shut an economy down. So we have to have really a, a whole system where we know that, you know, there's really something solid behind this, that debts will be repaid, that uh, money is never created for non-productive purposes, that you, that's what your past savings, you know, they, after you've generated the income, go spend it however you want to spend it. But in terms of bringing new capital, the things, the productive ways we can the uh, non-human ways we can participate in the economy. We have to be able to bring those new things in such a way that every person has equal opportunity and access in the means to acquire the new things, the new capital that hasn't even been formed yet.
Um, and we don't have, that means we don't have to take anything away from anyone who owns right now. We're building upon the future and just creating a better system, one that is based on feasibility, which just means that um, a, a business project is projected to do what it, it you know, will create and the goods and services and create profits. The feasibility of a project, the soundness of the money behind it, um, and, and, and other, you know, those sorts of factors that that has to underlie our whole economy and the money system that's that really facilitates that. Yeah. One of, one of the biggest problems is how people view, uh, I almost said how people view money again, but it's how money works. The fixed idea throughout academia and politics and just about every place these days is that First, you create a bunch of money, and then you do good stuff with it. Uh, this is actually called the currency principle. They, they see, they even have a name for it. Uh, and it was developed by the work of three men I won't bother to mention because you don't know who they were, except maybe Sir Robert Peel. Uh, and even in economics textbooks, they admit that what you had were these three guys in the British Parliament who had no idea what money was or how it worked or what banking operated. And they framed the British Banking Recharter Act of 1844, which said that, oh, well, first you have to have money, then you can do stuff. Whereas the older banking principle was that, oh no, first you figure out what you wanna do and then you create the money by doing it. In other words, you don't first create money to lend if you're a banker, you create money by lending. It, it's a very subtle concept at times, but essentially this currency principle says that the amount of money in the economy determines your economic activity. Whereas the banking principle was is that, no, your economic activity determines the amount of money. The one way people cannot, they're, they're not free to do what they, they, they need to do or want to do because someone else has control of the money. First, you have to create money. First, you have to save money. First, you have to have money. No, under the banking principle, first, you have to have an idea that's worth something. Then you can create the money out of it to be able to do what you want to do. The currency principle says, oh, no, you can't do anything until you first have money. It, 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 it it gets everything backwards. And frankly, the whole great reset and the, the whole history of the world for the past 200 years has been what, you know, Fulton Sheen in his first two books talked about. Everything's turned upside down. It's instead of uh, people are, you know, put the wrong stuff on top. And it, it, you have to read the, 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 probably the hardest books Fulton Sheen ever wrote. <laughs> you could have a dozen shows on those alone. God and Intelligence and Modern Philosophy and Light of the Philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Snappy title. It was his doctoral thesis. Or Religion Without God. But the whole idea was that everything's turned around. You know, it, no, I better not say that. Uh, <laughs> I just I almost said something you shouldn't say on TV. Uh, but he says, 
ultimately one's, what ends up with is that you have collective man in charge of God. You know, the, everything's upside down. Or you have the supernatural under the natural, or you eliminate the natural. Or, you know, instead of the human person being the, the, the focus of life, this abstraction, the collective, humanity, or some elite is, is the focus. Everything's backwards. Just like the currency principle is that, oh, well, money is the focus. We have to have money. That In the banking principle, money is almost incidental. What you need is something that's going to be productive. And then the money comes. This is why banks were invented to create money for productive purposes. That, that type of bank, the commercial bank. There are other types of banks that we won't get into because it would make your eyeballs roll back in your head. But essentially, if your system is structured properly, then money should not be a problem ever because that's what the system was set up to provide. Believe it or not, the Federal Reserve System was set up to create money for qualified industrial, agricultural, and commercial purposes. And the way it did it was somebody has something, a, a project that they want, they need money for, they take it to their commercial bank and their commercial bank takes it to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve creates the money and it goes back down the line. Money is only created or supposed to be created in response to something of actual value. So, there's a lot to dig deep into that. I mean, I know Dawn's <laughs> big in the money and things. And she could do a whole show on the money. Maybe she'll write a book on money. I don't know. Uh What's yeah, a, Mike, probably. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be something you could do in your spare time. It'd be a fun thing for you, probably. Yeah. Um, I, all I can think of Klaus and Dawes on this, Clark and Dawes, uh, the old the Austrian comedians. I think they're dead. But uh, what is on? To, what is the topic for next time? Well, probably the four... Poli- the <laughs> <laughs> Cut that, Steve. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get Michael, the, an English teacher, so he can learn the language. Economy. Okay. I think I said that. All right, so where yeah. can people find your books? <laughs> they can okay. go to, yeah, they can go to uh, the bookstore on uh, www.cesj, Center for Economic and Social Justice, .org. Uh, we have a, a bookstore. If you scroll down uh, to the bottom of the the web page, uh, the home page, also Amazon.com, um, you'll find um, our, our book, Economic Personalism: Property, Power, and Justice for Every Person. That's um, a lot of what we've been talking about, and we encourage people to, to visit our website because there's a huge amount of information about all of these ideas that we call the just third way of personalism and economic personalism so they'll they'll see a lot of really old ideas and um new expressed in new ways and um and really the coming together of the ideas of social justice and economic justice in a way that becomes um really a practical approach for rebuilding the world in a way that um, promotes the dignity and empowerment of every person under God. 
And your motto, the slogan you got on the website, or you guys using your emails? Yes. Own or be owned. <laughs> Maybe you need some t-shirts made in a mug, coffee mug, things like that. And we have them, too. If you look also, we have a Zazzle store where you can order t-shirts and mugs and et cetera, et cetera. There you go. Um, yeah. All right, Don, Michael, appreciate it as always. Just uh, check underneath in the show notes for the links to get the book. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you guys next time. Sounds great, Steve. Thanks so much. You're welcome.